0: explained that it's been caused by an outdated sim card that was in an ipad that i had for constituency purposes uh which was a parliamentary ipad uh, and it hadn't been replaced i wasn't aware that it had to be replaced and the cost built up as a result of that Um, i've also confirmed that the parliamentary uh, equipment was used for constituency and parliamentary purposes
2: how did the bill get to live in grand 11 000 pounds
1: Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. I'm Callum MacDonald. We're recording on Wednesday the 15th of November. Also on the podcast, Jeff Aberdeen, former Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond. Hello, Jeff. Hello. And Andy McKeever, who was Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy.
2: Hello. Sorry, I'm in the middle of eating a protein bar. It just slightly took me by surprise there apologies
1: for that. Not Hi. only were you 10 minutes late, but you're also snacking as we record. So that's brill. A uh, bit of admin first of all. Thanks to those of you who have signed up to the old uh, mailing list. It's lovely to have your names and emails on there so that we can keep in touch with you on special events and things in the new year. And there's already lots in the planning. So make sure you join that. Go to hollywoodsources.com and then click onto the page that says get our emails. It's really simple. Put your email address in there and join the mailing list. Uh, that is actually all the admin. Good. So we can get stuck in. Uh, shall we talk about iPads first of all, uh, the health secretary Michael Matheson uh, is facing a vote of no confidence potentially this week reports the Times uh, because because of his iPad expenses he ran up an eleven thousand pound roaming charge while on a week-long holiday in Morocco with his family he then took his time in agreeing to actually pay the pay the bill back it was a couple of days of delay he had in, in, originally claimed it on expenses and he said that the parliamentary authorities had investigated the matter fully earlier this year. Opposition parties are really piling in on this. Um, Andy McKeever, you have been tweeting this week that you find this story boring.
2: This yeah, is and everybody the agreed the health, with me as well. That was a good Well,
1: <laughs> they certainly did not. This is the health secretary spending yeah. £11,000 on his iPad and then expecting taxpayers to pay it for it. Why is that boring?
2: Um, well, you mentioned the key thing. He's the health secretary, and I'll get to that in a second. Uh, look, there are, I mean, obviously, uh, uh, Twitter is where nuance goes to die, and it has certainly died a very horrible death this week in relation to this story. There are, the, the nub of this story is an absolutely enormous bill, like an eye-watering amount of money to spend on iPad data. But Mm. there are then separate issues that go into that. Firstly, there's why is it, irrespective of what he was doing, which I'll get to in a second, why is it so expensive, right? So what's going on with the network that makes that so expensive? The second thing I think that goes into it is why is any MSP of any party being put in this position by the Scottish Parliament, I would expect that the employer would be going into the office, taking the iPad, changing the SIM card and giving it back. That is my That would be my expectation of a decent IT team at an employer. And then there's the third issue of what was Michael Matheson doing on his parliamentary iPad that required this amount of data? Now, we don't know the answer to actually any of these questions yet. I'm not implying it's a complete non-issue, but I do dislike the way that we have automatically dealt with it, which I think, I don't think it's peculiarly Scottish, but I do think that we tend to engage very heavily in trivialities rather than issues of substance. If the opposition want to attack Michael Matheson, there's plenty to attack Michael Matheson on. Our health service has crumbled And nobody is doing anything about it. And he is the health secretary. So I have no problem with them going on the attack with Michael Masson. But here's what I have a problem with. Um, We really struggle in this parliament to attract good people. We really, really struggle. We spoke about this months ago with Adam Tompkins, if you remember, who Mm, said that he reckoned there were 10 to 15 good MSPs and the rest were drops, his words, not mine. We struggle to attract good people. I don't think we pay politicians enough. I think that's one thing, but it's probably for a different podcast. My that's point is, we get so much on
1: expenses, Andy.
2: Well, does, does this sort of story, does this help our politics or hinder our politics? Michael Matheson might well resign this week. He might go. I wouldn't be at all surprised if he does. How is that helping? Who has that helped? Now, when the opposition go on about WhatsApp messages for COVID, right, that's, that's different. That's quite legitimate. That's important that we know what has been discussed during COVID. This is, in my view, an unimportant story. I understand why it attracts attention. I understand £11,000 is a lot of money. But in the grand scheme of things, I think this is an unimportant story. And it frustrates me that all we do in this country is get ourselves excited about this sort of crap.
1: Just just to ask... Are you saying that Michael Matheson is one of the best and the brightest and so doesn't deserve to be held accountable for spending £65 an hour for every hour of the week that he was on holiday?
2: I think the public needs accountability for this bill. I don't know enough yet to say that that is all Mm. Michael Matheson's fault. I know he didn't change his SIM card, but my point is, why the hell does he have to change his SIM card? Why is it not being done for him? He's the health secretary. He's got other things that we want him to do rather than worrying about changing his parliamentary SIM card. I think there are other issues, there are issues with why the network, any network is charging that amount of money for data. There are issues as to whether the parliamentary IT team did their job, and there are issues as to what Michael Matheson himself did. I'm not arguing for a second that he doesn't need to be held accountable, but he is the health secretary, and he has got more important things that I, as a citizen and a user of the NHS, want him to do. And I'd rather we talked about those things and the fact that the NHS has crumbled, I'd rather we talked about that in relation to Michael Matheson rather than his iPad use. I'm not minimising it. I'm just saying yeah. there are our priorities. Jeff,
0: yeah, I was listening to what Andy said there. Um, he said that the bill was eye-watering. He said there's three principal questions around uh, this issue. Um, why it took place in the first place, the expense claim, the parliamentary procedures, and what was he watching. Well, all that adds up to something that I don't think is particularly boring, uh, Andy, in that sense. Uh, And that's why the press are so interested. Now, I agree with you. I'd rather be discussing issues of substance. But clearly, the fault here lies, I'm afraid, with Michael Matheson himself. Uh, I I read today that the £11,000 claim was more than all other telephone-related bills from all MSPs that year. At that point, surely that's an alarm bell ringing saying, hold on a second, should I be putting this claim altogether? Shall I seek some advice? And I bet he's wishing today that he just paid it all then and realised that this was going to become a big issue. And this all comes back to judgment and handling. There has been a misjudgment on his part there. Uh, and then the handling since then has been somewhat contradictory. Um, it was a legitimate expense. And then the Parliament com- confirmed, well, actually, we, we took him at his word. We didn't really know what he was watching. And it adds more legs to this story. Uh, it should have been nipped in the bud a lot, lot sooner. Like I say, at the very outset of when the bill came through originally, it would have been my preference if I was still advising and in politics. Now, none of this isn't to say that I don't think that Michael Matheson's a very good um, uh, parliamentarian and indeed a minister. I've, I've, I've actually got to know him when I was in uh, government at the time. He's diligent and he's hard working, and it'll be a huge shame if he has to go. But if he has to go, it will be because of the poor handling and judgment that's been shown around this issue.
2: I, I, I don't think we are as far apart as it might seem we are. I mean, ultimately, I think there are some facts already established and one of those facts is that Michael Matheson was asked to change his SIM card and didn't change it, right? So, you know, when it comes to actually assigning blame for this, I think it will be assigned to Michael Matheson and that's fine. As I say, I don't think it should ever get to that stage. I think the Parliament should be taking care of these things for MSPs. I don't think they should be making MSPs do it themselves. I think it should be done for them. I think it's ridiculous that the IT department is not doing this for them. However, it will come down to the fact, I'm sure, that it's him to blame. My point, though, is that this is potentially turning into a situation where he is no longer the health secretary, right? And this is a country with big problems. We've got problems. Our health service is really in a bad, bad state of repair. So are many other policy areas that the Scottish government presides over. And we don't have a lot of depth on the SNP benches to fill cabinet roles. Now, my point is this. If Michael Matheson goes, effectively this becomes a sacking offence, which, by the way... In other workplaces, it wouldn't be a sacking offence, right? Let's get that clear. This effectively then becomes a sacking offence. And my point is, who wins out of that? Who's the winner from that? I can't think of one.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, but I was more meaning your your, your point about the the boring uh, story. Sadly, it's become interesting because of the lack of judgment and handling on the side of of Mr Matheson and indeed the SNP. And that's what's most unfortunate, because I do, again, agree with you. I think Michael Matheson is an asset to the government and he certainly doesn't want to be uh, facing a situation where he has to go over this. And it is a peripheral issue in that sense, Andy. But again, only
2: themselves to blame. Yeah, I think we're together on that, yeah.
1: Mm. Does it speak to a sort of arrogant nonchalance? Is that, is that part of the issue here, that there's some sort of arrogance where it's a bit like, oh, do you know what, let's just we'll move past this, we'll brush it off?
2: Um, I, I, I don't know if this issue can be put in that box, but what I would say is I think that over the last couple of years, the SNP and government has begun to suffer from the sort of thing that you're talking about. I think there has begun to be a perception, not only that they are untouchable, but they also deserve to be untouchable, because they're so convinced uh, of their own virtuousness. I think that does exist at layers of government, and I think there are some SNP politicians who are guilty of that. I don't... I mean, I know Michael Matheson, and my gut feeling about Michael Matheson is he's not one of those people, actually. Um, I don't think he's in that bracket, but... It would not be unfair, that's a horrible double double negative there, but you know what I'm saying, to accuse the SNP government of considering itself, yes, to be above some of these things. That, That has been evident over the last couple of years. That happens to all governments that have been in power for 16 years, I would say. But yes, that's evident
1: um it's an interesting one your thoughts on that very welcome by the way you can email hello at hollywoodsources.com uh because if the replies to andy's tweet or anything to go by you probably want to have your say on it uh, so hello at hollywoodsources.com uh, one other bit of admin that i should have done at the start actually is that jeff's getting some work done in the house so you, <laughs> so you might hear some thumping in the background from time to time Let's go on. We want to talk about the reshuffle at Downing Street. Rishi Sunak has reshuffled his cabinet once again. Suella Braverman is out as Home Secretary. Uh, James Cleverley replaces her as Home Secretary and in as Foreign Secretary, David Cameron. Uh, Jeff Aberdeen, you had some dealings with David Cameron back in the day, did you not?
0: I did indeed uh, on on a few occasions in the run-up to uh, the Edinburgh Agreement, which paved the way, obviously, for the independence referendum. Actually, found him uh, pretty reasonable to deal with. I certainly don't agree uh, with his politics. Uh, all in all, I think as far as Rishi Sunak is concerned, this is a a decent appointment. Um, you're bringing in someone of huge experience, a former Prime Minister. Um, uh, politically, it distracted from the outgoing Suele Braverman, although events since then have perhaps brought that more to the fore. But if you're looking at the challenge ahead for the Conservatives, and it's a massive challenge, uh, is David Cameron going to be uh, an asset as you're trying to climb up that mountain and and regain some traction in the the polls? I think probably he is. Um, So overall, I think as far as he's concerned, it's a a decent appointment. Andy?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much with Jeff on that. I think um, I... uh, For me, this is about legacy, both for Sunak and Cameron. Actually, I'll get to Cameron in a second. But um, Sunak took over a year ago from Truss, and uh, I think he realised he was taking on a maximum two-year job, and then he was more than likely going to be out uh, and losing at the election. I think what he probably wanted to do was to be seen to have left the place a little bit better than he found it. So I think he's trying gradually to return the party to some sort of sensible centrism, um, that is seen to be stable domestically and globally, um, and if you look at this, epo- I mean and, and you're having Hunt as chancellor as part of that as well, but if you look at this particular reshuffle, um, you know you 've got uh, Braverman out cleverly shifted and Cameron in, and if you 're somebody who would rather focus on that sort of centrist approach than the approach of the populist right, that 's basically a pretty good day. From that point of view, Um, you know, if you look at uh, Sunak himself, you look at Hunt, you look at Cameron, you think about what's happening in the world and domestically over the next year or so. They are people who are harder to criticize and are relatively stable. It's not enough to win an election. I mean, you know, a new foreign secretary, irrespective of who he is, does not really win elections. This election will be won or lost based on the economy and the cost of living. That's what it's going to be about. But what it does do is it generally makes the Tories appear a little bit more palatable. Um, Will it lose any votes? I don't think so. Um, I don't think this kind of rightist populism really has any legs, not least because there's nobody who is able to carry it off. I mean, Braverman's just not that good. That's the subplot here. It's It's actually not very good. So I don't think that sort of populism has many legs, I think that moving back towards a more centrist approach probably brings a few votes that might be going to Labour back into the Tory camp, might bring a few seats that are going to Labour back into the Tory camp. Will it be enough to win the election? Almost certainly not. Uh, will it be enough to make the end result look a little bit better than it otherwise might have? Probably.
1: Of course, when it comes to domestic politics, David Cameron, he's a, he's a gambler who won, isn't he, Jeff? He, he, he did the, gave us the independence referendum and he, and he won. <laughs> He gambled, it paid off. Uh...
2: I, I,
0: I mean, <laughs> let me put it fairly. Um, I I, I don't think he thought for a second that the yes vote was going to get to 45%. And if he thought that was the case, he wouldn't have probably agreed to the referendum, certainly wouldn't have agreed to give uh, the Scottish government the franchise, you know, the... Uh, the, the the question, to be framed, the date of the question and the uh, 16-year-olds voting. Um, did it pay off for him? Uh, the s p went on to win 56 out of 59 seats shortly after. Uh, <laughs> uh, I just don't know if he... He won. Listen, I'm being churlish. His side won, but they, they they panicked somewhat, did they not, in the closing days to come up with the fabled vow. So I don't know if it was a, a roaring success as far as they're concerned. Mm. In terms of, of how he's remembered, I wonder if he's viewing this, though. If I'm in his shoes right now and going, I'm going to be remembered for the guy that basically led to the UK leaving the European Union. Now, I don't think uh, mm. anyone will ever forget that, but perhaps he's trying to mark his... Uh, jotter with some more positive uh, foreign policy interventions. And we'll see what happens with David Cameron and whether he has an influence in what's going on in the Ukraine. And indeed, of course, in uh, Gaza just now in the Israeli situation. Um, perhaps he's viewing this as an opportunity to resuscitate his legacy somewhat, as Andy points out.
2: Just on that, I mean, I think that you know, and I I did say I was going to go on to Cameron's legacy and totally forgot to. Um, I think that's a huge part of it. Is that Cameron probably doesn't like his the final paragraph of his biography. Um, It's not the way he would have wanted to go out. So I I do think that there's a huge part of that from his point of view as well. I definitely don't want to get onto who ran good referendum campaigns and who didn't because we know where that goes on this podcast and we don't want to return to that. So I will purely focus on one side of the argument only by saying that um, Cameron and those around him think they did a fabulous job Mm. in the 2014 referendum campaign. And all I would say is that I... Politely disagree,
0: but I just want to point in there. Sorry, you mentioned it, Andy. Yes, it was a, a respected <laughs> referendum that was agreed between two governments. Oh God! Um, oh no. Nobody throughout that campaign suffered as much as I. Stop! A Help. It was uh, regarded as Help. a hugely successful democratic exercise with over eighty-five oh. percent of the people voting oh, in it and yet yes you oh, seem to think as i recall it was an international embarrassment
2: hmm oh don't God. think so somehow you still got those lines to take in front of you <laughs> right we're gonna move on we g- nationalists, can never, <laughs> we're on. On. nationalists <laughs> can never move on uh, nationalists can never move on we're gonna have to stay quickly. on this topic a- for the rest of the podcast it's been
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's been a busy week we've got lots to cover uh right in a a not unrelated uh, uh, story to the reshuffle then, uh, we've had the Rwanda uh, judgment today so this was uh, of course, the government's plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. Uh, an airplane with asylum seekers is yet to take off, and it looks like it's not going to for quite some time, if at all. The Supreme Court has ruled that it would be unlawful to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. It is a major blow to Rishi Sunak and the government. Hamza Yusuf 's response to this, not only is the UK government's policy of sending asylum seekers to Rwanda morally repugnant, but it's now been confirmed as unlawful too. The policy must be scrapped. We need a humane system that doesn't leave asylum seekers stuck in destitution for years without the right to work. Andy, there's probably largely the agreement that a humane system is welcome, although I've seen the Conservative MP Lee Anderson simply saying, uh, ignore the laws, send them back in the last uh, little while uh, after this news. But I, I suppose there probably is
0: agreement that... I think we should ignore Lee Anderson, well, incidentally. Well, <laughs>
1: fair. Uh, that a humane system is is what is being looked for here. Um, but the government—I mean, this is a dead end for the government. So, where where can they realistically turn next?
2: Well, it is a bit of a dead end. This whole area, in terms of creating policy, is an extremely difficult dead end, and nobody has come up with a good system yet. We are um, it, it, Britain is a geographically problematic place when it comes to. Uh, uh, migration, asylum seeking, refugees and so on it is a very uh, difficult place to be geographically and for better or worse um, we have that issue to deal with in one way or another um, and nobody has found a particularly good way of dealing with it that pleases everybody. Actually though, I mean I'm not, you know, not to minimise the Supreme Court decision because obviously it requires the government to then do something but this is not actually about that as much as it is about the battle for the future of the Tory party. Um, and, you know, this is the decision which uh, the that sort of populist right, which has had a variety of darlings in the past and currently at Sula Breverman, um, were looking for in order that they can you know create some sort of noise and make some sort of attack. I actually just don't think it's really going to get anywhere, to be honest with you. I think the cohort of people mm-hmm. who are so exercised about this is too small to give Sunak any significant trouble. And as I said before, I think the people who are in that cohort are not actually good enough to give Sunak any sort of trouble. If you look at, again, if you look at polling, um, crime and immigration, particularly in certain parts of England, is a big issue, but it's nothing like as big an issue as the economy. Nothing like as big an issue as the economy. Um, And the number of votes that this shifts, I think is simply not enough to give camera to give them um, sunak the sort of trouble that they 're hoping it 's going to give them, I, I think they are actually being minimized as a force that that populist right rather than being maximized at the moment
0: yeah i think um, I think that 's about to be tested, and we 'll find out I, I think my instinct tells me you might be right andy uh, that it won 't have the impact uh, that you that some observers, particularly on the right of the conservative party might think it does. I hope that to be the case, incidentally. Just from a personal perspective, I found the whole Rwanda policy escapade, whatever you want to call it, pretty inhumane, cruel, and, as the First Minister pointed out, morally repugnant. And it's actually interesting that we're talking about David Cameron earlier on. If he were Prime Minister, would a policy like that have ever seen the light of day? I suggest it probably wouldn't. But we're about to find out just how strong that right wing of the party is. Um, Suelle Braveman and, and and honestly, one of the most petulant letters of resignation I saw yesterday. Um uh, is clearly well bear in mind it wasn't even a letter of resignation, oh, Jeff, because she was sacked. Yes, indeed, so was it... indeed, of course. Um <laughs> thank you for pointing that out. You're quite right, of course. Um I don't know. but clearly she's getting up to try and mobilize supporters against Rishi Sunak. So it's gonna be fun, fascinating to to see how strong that cabal truly is, because it's about to be tested. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: Um, we say it's a busy week. We're whizzing through lots on the podcast today. Um, your thoughts on all of it, very welcome. You can email hello at hollyroodsources.com. I want to come on to discuss the Labour Party now um, because it's in a bit of a predicament Uh, as it has been for weeks now, on the situation regarding uh, a ceasefire or not when it comes to the conflict in Gaza. So Sir Keir Starmer is attempting to put Labour's position on the conflict to a vote to try and maintain some sort of party unity. There's a lot of kind of House of Commons procedure going on here, so bear with me and I'll try and explain at least some of it. The party's tabled a Commons amendment reflecting concerns over the civilian death toll and urging that longer pauses in the fighting are needed in order that aid can get in. But it stops short of urging an immediate ceasefire in the conflict. Dozens of Labour MPs have defied Keir Starmer. They've said, no, no, now is the time to call for a ceasefire. Now, we can add to that the kind of pressure that's built from the SNP, uh, from Stephen Flynn and other SNP MPs, and indeed Hamza Yusuf calling for a ceasefire as well. And in terms of the kind of politics of all of this, um, it's now looking like a pretty precarious position for the Labour Party. Andy, is that a fair assessment? Is it precarious? What, what kind of happens next, basically?
2: Um, I think it'll be a difficult couple of days if, he, if Starmer has to follow through and sack these frontbenchers who uh, are talking about backing uh, the motion, then I think it'll be a difficult couple of days. But I actually think that Starmer will get through it fine, um, the polling hasn't, you know, the overall um, voting intention polling has not really changed throughout this debate, and I'm not convinced it will change. Um, I think that the uh, frontbenchers in question are being self-indulgent and stupid here with the action that they're taking. Um, we discussed this at length with Alex Cole-Hamilton a couple of weeks ago, and if listeners want to hear a kind of bit more depth in that, then, you know, go back and listen to that podcast as well. But in summary, my view is that... Um, Starmer in calling for humanitarian pauses is in effect calling for the same thing as a ceasefire. He simply doesn't want to legitimize Hamas by calling for a formal ceasefire. And the reason I say it would legitimize Hamas is that a ceasefire traditionally, and there have been many ceasefires in many conflicts over the world, requires two parties to agree Mm. to stop fighting for a defined period of time. You can't, you can't have that unless you have two rational actors. And Hamas is not a rational actor. Hamas is a terrorist organisation who will very clearly, and everybody I think accepts this, and let, other than maybe some people at the most extreme end, accept that Hamas will not have a ceasefire. So calling for a ceasefire is a waste of time. It, it's, just, it's just wording. It's self-indulgent wording. And to create a problem inside a party which is just about to take power an artificial pro- problem over something which will change absolutely nothing whatsoever, I think is just daft, to be honest with you. So I think Starmer is right to hold the line. I think the frontbenchers are being foolish. What we're all asking for here, what Labour are asking for under Starmer, what the backbenchers in effect are asking for, and the frontbenchers in effect are asking for, and what the UK government is asking for, is for Israel to stop and for a certain period of time. And for Israel generally to change its position on the spectrum of how hard it is going into Gaza to defend itself and to defend its territory. That's what everybody's asking for. Everybody's basically saying, look, it's too much, it's too far, you need to dial it back a little bit. That is what the outcome is here. It's not a ceasefire. I
1: mentioned the SNP, and I just want to add that they... I think the SNP role in this has been quite interesting, and Jeff, I'm keen for your thoughts on that, because um, they have been kind of pushing for this vote, calling for a ceasefire, which has kind of added to the political drama of of the whole thing, the SNP motion. And that's where this Labour amendment has come from. So as I say, there's parliamentary process still to happen. But the SNP have been very loud, very vocal about all of this. And has that sort of compounded the issue for the Labour Party, Jeff?
0: Uh, can I, I will return to that question very quickly. but yeah, yeah, I sure. said a few weeks ago when we, we started talking about Israel and Gaza that I didn't, particularly want to comment (laughs) in depth until I'd done my own research and all the rest of it. And so I I have bought a book, Arabs and the Israelis. Um, Conflict and peacemaking in the Middle East It's fabulous. I'm only a quarter of the way through, um, and I highly recommend it to anyone that wants to know more about this um, really tragic situation and the history that underpins it all. Um, Going back to the SNP, yes, they've been pretty consistent in their approach. Um, they've sought to uh, expose Labour's difficulties on this. Um, I, I think, to be honest with you, the, the Rwanda policy today and the uh, Suala Breverman overtures, uh, it competes with that in terms of press coverage. And I'm sorry to sound so callous, but just I'm just talking about the political process here about where this all lands. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Labour will... Um, survive this, not least because Andy's right. Uh, they're a party that is um, getting prepared for government uh, and nobody will want to upset the apple cart too much in that respect. But nonetheless, you know, this is a legitimate debate within the Labour Party. Um, regardless of what your views are, there are strongly held views uh, amongst parliamentarians. And it's interesting, is it not, that we're talking about the the potential fissures in the Conservative Party, um, Uh, over um, uh, the recent reshovel and and Rwanda, and we're looking at the the Labour Party going through its own internal difficulties. And uh, the SNP, as far as they're concerned, will try and remain consistent throughout uh, and claim credit for that. But ultimately, what we're dealing here with is a tragic situation. And again, Andy's right. You need two rational actors to come to a ceasefire, regardless of what your position is or which side of the... Particular debate you're on. And that doesn't look likely anytime soon, sadly.
1: Yeah. Uh, and there is there is due, there's expected to be a Holyrood vote on this as well next week. Uh, and so there's an interesting consideration here for Anna Sarwar, the Scottish Labour leader, who the Scotsman report today is facing increased pressure to rebel against Sir Keir Starmer in this Holyrood vote. Uh, Sarwar was not among nine of his own MSPs who backed a Scottish Green motion calling for a ceasefire and is not back to the similar SNP motion, despite previously calling for one. So that's an interesting dynamic as well to this, Andy, isn't it? The kind of the, the Scotland, Scottish Labour versus Sir Keir Starmer and whether that's a, a sort of irreparable difference in this context. Uh, context.
2: Yeah, and again, I, I think, you know, much as I have a lot of time personally for Anas Sarwar, I think it was a mistake for him to call for the ceasefire. I think it was the wrong thing to do. Uh, and I just, I as I said, in the context I mentioned before, I don't think it actually makes particular sense. But in the longer term, I think that this is probably going in the right direction for Starmer. And I'll tell you what I thought was really particularly interesting. And Bear in mind that, uh, you know, having been in obscurity for a little while, Jeremy Corbyn has become quite an important actor again here. Um, And... uh, not that I would want to advertise any other communications medium other than Hollywood sources, but if anybody wants to watch the Piers Morgan uncensored interview with Jeremy Corbyn, it was absolutely mesmerising. And I think that as more and more people realise that if they are in that camp, then it is the views of Jeremy Corbyn uh, and the socialist group of uh, MPs in Parliament that they are aligning themselves with. I think more and more more sensible centrist people will shy away from that and move further towards Starmer's position um, because the Corbyn position is as extreme as I have ever seen it on this issue, and that is saying something.
0: But just, just to be fair, though, Andy, let, let's be careful not to equate too directly those two things. You've got Jeremy Corbyn failing to answer a simple question whether he thinks Hamas is a terrorist organisation, and you've got legitimate calls for a ceasefire within the Westminster Parliament. They're not the same thing, to be fair. You know, are a lot of MPs in the Labour benches uh, that are wanting to vote for that uh, uh, motion uh, that would equate Ham- Hamas as a terrorist organisation. So let's just... Been, I'm just... I think we've got to be careful.
2: No, I know. I, 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 I totally agree. But I suppose my point is that when you make an assessment of your own sort of direction of travel and when you make an assessment of what other sorts of people are in your camp, you need to decide whether or not you want to be in that camp or not. It's a little bit like, you know, I've always been a very clear believer in Palestinian statehood, but I'd go nowhere near one of these marches that are going on right now. Because I would take the view that by doing so, I would personally risk being associated with something I would very clearly not want to be associated with. And that really is my point here. I'm not saying that those who want a ceasefire believe the same things as Jeremy Corbyn. My point is that those who are putting the word ceasefire above all else, they need to be aware what line of thought by association they'll be involving themselves with.
1: Interesting. Right. Thanks both. That's good. that We've got through lots on the podcast. Your thoughts. Very welcome. Hello at hollywoodsources.com. I should just say another little bit of admin. I've been gathering your questions over the last couple of weeks that you've been emailing in. And we will do a Q&A episode with Jeff and Andy before the end of the year, which actually is not that far away. Uh, but make sure you're following and subscribed. If you've got questions anytime or analysis anytime, you can email anytime. Hello at hollywoodsources.com to get in touch and to stay in touch. Uh, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Andy. And we will We'll speak to you again next week.